This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by Five Steps to Focus Driven Achievement, a free mini course to help you get the most from the Full Focus Planner so you can maximize your achievement this year. Learn more at fullfocusplanner.com slash free. In 1954, Martin Luther King Jr. became pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. He was just 25 years old. Nobody could have predicted he was about to turn the world upside down. Just as I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. It started when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a segregated public bus in 1955. She was arrested and fined by the city. And in response, King led the Montgomery bus boycott. And that was the day when we decided that we were not going to take segregated buses any longer. Ultimately, the U.S. Supreme Court sided with the boycotters and ruled Alabama's bus segregation laws unconstitutional in 1956. A year after that, King formed the Southern Christian Leaders Conference, spoke before his first national audience, and made the cover of Time magazine. But that was only the beginning. King's organizing and protest work continued into the late 50s and early 60s, with sit-ins and protests culminating in the events of 1963. Not only did he write his most influential work, Letter from a Birmingham Jail, he also led the March on Washington, attended by over 200,000 people. It was the 100th anniversary of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, and King gave his stirring I Have a Dream speech from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. The demonstration galvanized national support for civil rights. Earlier that summer, President John F. Kennedy introduced the nation's most sweeping civil rights legislation to date. King's advocacy was instrumental in its passage in 1964. Time picked King as its Person of the Year, and in 1964, the Nobel Committee made him the youngest ever recipient of the Peace Prize. There was more work to do, of course, but King had initiated changes that would transform American society. That's why the nation celebrates Martin Luther King Day on the third Monday of every January. It's a chance to reflect on what he meant for the nation and what made his leadership so successful. Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt. And I'm Megan Hyatt Miller. And this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast to help you win at work succeed at life, and lead with confidence. And in this episode, we're going to explore the leadership legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. Hey, Meg. Hey, Dad. So this is a pretty exciting topic. It is. Yeah. And even though we celebrated it in the U.S. yesterday, mm-hmm. we think, as we were saying before the show, Martin Luther King Day should not really just be a day, yeah. but it's really kind of a way of thinking, and it has so many leadership lessons that apply 365 days a year. Totally agree. In fact, there are five that we're going to talk about today from his life, so you want to jump into the first? I do. The first lesson, particularly for leaders, is that you have to reject the status quo. Mm -hmm. Now, think a little bit about the historical context. Segregation was nearly universal in the South. Mm -hmm. It's hard for us to relate to this because so much has happened precisely because of Dr. King's legacy. Mm -hmm. But there was a time when this was not the norm. 
The status quo was segregation. The North certainly had its problems too. But what happened to Rosa Parks was the norm. And I think it's easy for us to look back on that and think that that somehow that was an exception, that that's not really how people lived. But that was the norm. That was the status quo. But just because something's normal doesn't mean it's acceptable. Yeah, absolutely. Norms can change and they have to change. In fact, uh, you don't lead, You don't actually need a leader unless you want to change. If you're happy with the status quo, don't hire a leader. You don't have to be a leader to maintain the status quo. You only have to be a leader if you want to change the status quo. And that's exactly what Dr. King did. Absolutely. It reminds me of that quote from him that says, Montgomery is known as the cradle of the Confederacy, but now the cradle is rocking. I Love that. I just get chills when I read that. Um, it's it's really amazing. It reminds me of the fact that as a leader, not only um, can norms change and you can reject the status quo, but in order to do that, there's a level of courage and bravery that's required in naming the reality of the situation, not hiding it. So that was right. kind of like the first step was calling it what it is. And that that quote that I just read is profound. Well, and I think also declaring that it's unacceptable. Yes. You know, just be willing to reject it. I remember when I became the president of Thomas Nelson Publishers before I was the CEO, because I was like the president and the COO, and I started changing some things. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that one of my direct reports assistant, a message that she sent got back to me, and she said, why does he have to change stuff? And I thought, why not? I mean, to me... Change is inevitable for mm-hmm. any growing, living organism. I mean, everything in our business, for example, we're constantly tweaking, constantly right. evolving. We don't leave anything alone. But particularly when you're looking at a situation where there's sort of this systemic injustice, yeah, and there are these moral implications of it, and they need to be rectified. And I think that that's one of the things as leaders, we can't get dull to that. And I think um, there is such an emphasis in our society today about being politically correct or going with the flow, or we don't want to get, you know, the kind of the resistance from people because we're stopping to name things that aren't right, that mm-hmm. are part of the status quo. I mean, the whole Me Too movement. Right. You know, that's, that's a situation where there was sort of the status quo, the accepted, um, you know, quid pro quo, to use another Latin phrase, but the quid pro quo of if you want a job in this industry you have to give sexual favors. Mm-hmm. And finally, some people said, no. No. It's, it's, that's, not gonna, that's not how it's going to work. It's not how it should work. And now we're seeing this entire resistance movement, this reckoning, as it's been called, that's happened in the U.S. And I think it's a really, really good thing. Well, and rejecting the status quo starts with vision. And I think that's what we're talking about here is, is a vision for something better, which would be the answer to um, the, the staff person at Thomas Nelson. You know, why, do you, why does he have to change things? Because he has a vision for something better. And that was true, you know, 10x and then some for Dr. King. You know, it, it makes me think about the flip side of that, which is what is the cost of accepting the status quo as a leader? Yeah. Just broadly, you know, what's been your experience with that? Well, usually um, it it means that uh, we settle for something less than could be. Mm-hmm. You know, we we lose vision. We don't allow vision to flourish. Um, a because it's that, too risky, right? Right. And you and you start building cynicism mm-hmm. into the culture. And probably that's how it was in Hollywood. That's probably how it is in a lot of other industries and a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, but just that accepting of the status quo tends to make people cynical. Like, you know, it's never going to get better. It can't get any better. Guess we just have to cope. Cope? Oh. What a gross word, by the way. Cope. 
Yeah. I mean, it just sort of feels like resignation. You're like, you're just going to sit there and cope. Like you're putting just, up with. Yeah. No coping, people. No coping. Change. Change is what we want. Okay. So I got to tell you this story. Um, after Apple founder and CEO Steve Jobs died in 2011, mm-hmm. wasn't that long ago? No. His wife, Lorene Powell, said this at his funeral, and I'm quoting, it is hard enough to see what is already there, to remove the many impediments to a clear view of reality. But Steve's gift was even greater. He saw clearly what was not there, what could be there, what had to be there. His mind was never a captive of reality. Huh. Love that. Quite the contrary, she goes on, he imagined what reality lacked and he set out to remedy it. Hmm. And that's exactly what Dr. King did. Absolutely. So the second lesson is to reframe limiting beliefs. And this is something that you talk about in your book, Your Best Year Ever. Yeah, I find that the biggest impediment to us accomplishing anything happens in our mind Mm -hmm. because we have these limiting beliefs. They're not reality. They're the map of reality, but we confuse the map with the reality. And so, for example, some limiting beliefs that Dr. King had to face in our culture were things like the civil rights movement is asking for too much too fast. Mm. You know, there's always that tendency, you know, slow down the change, you know, just take your time. It'll come eventually, which it usually doesn't without a catalyst Mm. and without somebody moving quickly. Another limiting belief, the civil rights movement is stirring up unnecessary trouble. (laughs) Yeah. Or nonviolence won't move the needle. Armed resistance is needed. So, I mean, he Mm. didn't just face it on one side, but he faced it on the other side. Mm -hmm. You know, he was really a voice, I I think, of moderation. He didn't uh, cave to either extreme. Here is another limiting belief. Whites won't change. Racial reconciliation is impossible. Hmm. Or here is another one. Racism is ingrained in the culture. We'll never change that, let alone the law. Now, the thing about limiting beliefs is they're usually based on experience. Right. I was going to say, when you're reading that list, man, you could back up any one of those things, or at least the last few, you know, with... um some great historical facts of why they would be true. Totally. You have and, this and experience. And they could keep you really stuck. Yep. These, you have these experiences. And then they kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They ossify. Is that a word? Calcify? Calcify. That's the <laughs> word I'm looking for. What's ossify? I don't know. Weird. Felt like you're going to teach me a new word. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So the, you have these, these beliefs, these experiences, and then they turn into uh, beliefs about the world. Yeah. And so you generalize, you go global with it. Mm-hmm. So for example, you might have an experience um, with racism or with somebody from another race, and then you universalize that experience and say, everybody from that group is like this. Especially if there's been injustice involved in that, yep. some kind of trauma, fear, anything like that. Those emotions really galvanize limiting beliefs just generally. But I think with this list, that's that's especially true. Like it's it was a powerful thing to overcome. Well, what's Formidable. remarkable is that Dr. King and others in the movement, by the way, didn't accept those beliefs. Right. They had this steadfast persistence that reality could be different. Mm-hmm. Somehow they understood. I don't think they would have used this language, but they understood that those were limiting beliefs and they were holding the movement back and they were really holding our country back. You know, not only did Dr. King and the other leaders of the movement reject the status quo, 
But they also accepted what was really a truly daring vision for what was possible. I mean, talk about seeing into the future where nothing like this existed. When you listen to the I Have a Dream speech and you think about the reality of what was going on, and then you think about the words that Dr. King painted of racial reconciliation and unity, I mean, it was radical. It was radical. Like, it did not exist. It was totally unimaginable until the words came out of his mouth. Let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens... In retrospect, standing as we are in 2018, this all looked like it was inevitable. It looked like it would must have been easy, but it was unbelievably difficult. Right. Because they were facing this pervasive, culture-wide limiting belief or set of limiting beliefs that had to be overcome. And the only way you overcome that as a leader is to paint a picture mm-hmm. of a better, more desirable, vivid future. And that's exactly what he did. Absolutely. Okay. One of the questions is, why do limiting beliefs have the power they do? And I think one of the reasons they do is because we're largely unaware of them. Yeah, that's so true. So I can see your limiting beliefs. I could see you know somebody else's limiting beliefs. But to see my own limited beliefs takes a tremendous amount of self-awareness. And that's one of the things I've, I've tried to do in the book, Your Best Year Ever, is to give people a process for kind of excavating their own limiting beliefs mm-hmm. and going on a, a scavenger hunt for them, if you will, inside their own psyche. Yeah. Because these things will derail you more than any other single thing as a leader. It's so true. And we have to find them and disempower them. And the only way we do that is to reframe them and to reframe them with a vision of a different kind of future. Okay, so the third lesson from Martin Luther King Jr.'s leadership is the importance of listening. Now, as leaders, we tend to think of our role as primarily of talking. You know, <laughs> right. we're using our words to create a vision, we're directing other people, we're in meetings, blah, blah, blah. But in her book, My Time with the Kings, AP reporter Katherine Johnson talked about King's opposition to the Vietnam War. Now get this, at one point, while discussing his objections, he asked Johnson, how do you feel about U.S. involvement in Vietnam? She was flattered he cared about her opinion. Mm. He asked her, the reporter, the question. She said not only was King an eloquent speaker, but he was a superb listener. Now, I've heard this about a lot of leaders, but it's critically important because it's the first step in creating alignment. Absolutely. You know, if people don't feel like they've been heard, if you're not listening to them, they're very much less likely to follow you. So it's an essential leadership skill, and Dr. King really demonstrated that. Well, there's nothing worse than stepping out in front of the microphone with some message only to realize you got it all wrong, <laughs> and you were totally tone deaf, and there you are, and what are you going to do? So that was not like Dr. King, though. In fact, uh, it kind of goes back to the beginning with the boycott, the Montgomery bus boycott, 
He said, I neither started the protest nor suggested it. I simply responded to the call of the people for a spokesperson. Isn't that great? That's a that's a great uh, that's a great place to start as a leader. It is. He listened to the people around him. And the truth is that is what all effective leaders do. He listened to what was going on. And then he asked himself how he could help. Well, it kind of begs the question, why don't leaders listen more? Yeah. Or why do so many leaders, they just don't, they just don't get this? Why do you think it is? I think it's partly out of habit because I think our people look to us to move a vision forward, to share a vision, to make decisions, to make calls, all those things that we think of traditionally as leadership skills or leadership responsibilities. Um, So I think if we're not really intentional about listening, it can just kind of fall by the wayside as a skill. And it is a skill. I think it's a discipline and it's a skill. It is. And I think it can also come out of a a subtle form of pride. Oh, yeah, for sure. Where we think that we're the leader because, and we never say this out loud, but, you know, we're the smartest person (laughs) You know, we've got the answers. We have the most experience. And a lot of leaders want to be efficient. Right. They want to be productive. Yes. So you get together in a meeting. And so why wait for everybody else's perspective when obviously you see the truth of the situation? You know, you've got a handle on it. You know what the solution should be. So let's just get it out there and get back to work, right? And save everybody so much time. <laughs> <laughs> so I, th- I think as a leader, one thing I had to learn, you know, is I, I thought initially in my role as a leader, it was all about having the answers. Yeah. What I grew to realize it is it's actually about having the right questions. So true. And and you've got to be able to put the questions out there mm-hmm. and um and then draw the, people out. Yep. Right? And and I think one of the things I learned too as a leader is never go first. Yes. And and we've talked about that. We have. Right? Because if you go into a meeting and you're the first one to volunteer your opinion, guess what? The entire room shifts to that opinion. Yep. You know, because people feel like, you know, they got to go along to get along or somehow that's the right answer, you know, and, and it's not. And so I find, I find that if I go last, mm-hmm. and actually my predecessor at Thomas Nelson did this, Sam huh. Moore, he would go last because he wanted to get the best thinking of the group. Wow. Without biasing it. Yep. You know, this reminds me of something that I read in a book called Meetings Suck couple years ago by Cameron Harold, And he has this exercise that he does um, or a, a method for leading meetings where he has the least senior person go first when there's some kind of a contribution to be made. And, and he's very intentional about it. And so he'll prep the leaders, the other leaders in the group, if there's kind of a bigger meeting, for example, and he'll have those people um, who are sort of at the bottom of the the org chart go first because otherwise they're often silenced by the opinions of their supervisors and sometimes the very best contributions come from those people and he says my goal is to have nothing to contribute when it's finally my turn that all the best ideas have already been shared before it was my turn I love that I do too and the and the sort of the paradox of it is is you look like a genius as a leader right because you've listened you've built trust. You validated the role of other people in the room, mm-hmm. and it's 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 a great leadership skill, and we need to cultivate that. And Dr. King is a good example of it. He is. The fourth leadership lesson from Dr. King is to create an inclusive vision. Now, you can really, really hear this in the I Have a Dream speech, but it was true of the movement he led. I mean, it was people of all different backgrounds, racial, confessional, religious, He knew diversity made the movement stronger. And I think even more importantly, he was modeling on a smaller scale what he hoped to achieve on a grand scale. Hmm, It's really true. And it's the same with any team. 
diversity feeds team creativity, resourcefulness, resilience, all those things. When we're all the same, I mean, let's be honest, the ideas aren't that great. We kind of see things through one lens. It just becomes kind of boring and not that innovative. But diversity of all kinds helps us to break through that. Racial diversity is part of that, certainly. But it's even beyond that. Cultural diversity, cognitive diversity, personality diversity, skill set diversity. I think one of the challenges for leaders is that if they're not careful, they end up just hiring a bunch of people that are exactly like them. Right. Look like them, talk like them, sound like them, went to the same schools, all that. Besides being kind of creepy, it doesn't really work well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you think about it, diversity is something that's inherent in creation. Right. You know, God made the world incredibly rich and diverse for a reason. Right. Because we can all benefit from it. So to think, for example, I mean, if we, if we only thought there was a certain color of flower that was the right flower and everything else was wrong, um, it'd be a very boring world. But there's this rich diversity, whether it comes to race or experience or language or any of that. And one of the things we've tried to do at Michael Hyatt and Company is we want to build a company that reflects our audience, mm-hmm. right? And we've got a very diverse audience and therefore, we want to we don't want to create the most diverse team culture that we possibly can. Right, and this is one of those things that um, is really important to think about when you talk about strengths on your team, personality, yes, those kind of things, because uh, it can become very uh, monochromatic, for lack of a better word. You know, just boring and um, no real diversity. But we found we need people who are very different than us, very different strengths, very different ways of initiating work, very different ways of coming up with ideas. And what we're able to create on the other side of that is so much richer, so much more beautiful than if everybody was like you or, or like me. Well, it's true. And the thing about diversity is that it, it can create tension mm-hmm. in an organization yep. unless you learn how to manage it. And so I've asked Chris Williamson, senior pastor of Strong Tower Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee, for his thoughts about managing that tension. When it comes to managing the tension um, of diversity, in your organization. I think there are a couple things to consider. I think, uh, number one, we need to be honest that the tension even exists in our organization. Um, Sometimes we have rose-colored glasses and we don't like to think uh, that things are hostile or um, that the environment is somewhat distressed. Um, But the truth is we don't live in a post-racial society. Um, Race is still very much a real factor and it has to be dealt with. So we have to be honest about uh, where we've come from, where we are and where we need to go. Without honesty, we can't have the transparency that we need that will get us to the place of unity and harmony in the workplace. So we gotta be honest because just because we have different experiences, that doesn't mean that someone's experience is not valid. So we need to listen to the voices of um, those who may be a little bit lower on the uh, organization chart or flow chart in terms of what their grievances or complaints may be from their vantage point. We need to give validity. We have to be honest. But I think secondly, we have to embrace this tension. No problem will be corrected without being confronted. So we have to lean into what's uncomfortable. We have to lean into what may make us feel um, just somewhat uh, not at ease. But you know what, in every relationship, there are gonna be moments of tension. And the only way to solve these um, disagreements is to press in, is to lean in. And we do that because the goal of the organization 
is bigger than any one person. The mission of the organization, the product that we're sending forth is, is so important that we have to get through trivial yet important issues. Um, there's something bigger at stake. And so we don't want to keep pulling over um, to, to address an issue. Um, we, 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 we want to be able to, yes, get it addressed, but keep the big picture in mind. So we have to embrace the problem. If not, it will come back to bite us at a time where um, it's going to be really inconvenient. But finally, I think uh, when it comes to managing the tension of diversity in an organization is we need to make practical steps to alleviate the tension. Um, again, if we don't address it, and if we don't address it in a pragmatic, qualitative way, then once again, history will repeat itself and the de definition of insanity will prove to be true, doing the same thing over and over again and ex expecting different results. So to see new results, we've got to do some new things. Just yesterday, um, a white colleague of mine uh, shared with me some tension on in, in, in his uh, job. He just got hired after a long search uh, with many candidates and he accepted the job and he stepped into the role um, and it was not too long before he realized that the people who were under him had issues with the process and even with him because there were black people who weren't considered for the role at all and uh, people have been with the company for almost two decades who were not included in the search for the role so when my friend came in, um, he had tension from Jump Street right there. Um, but I'm proud of him because he embraced the tension and he listened to the people. He listened to the frustration of those who felt slighted, overlooked by the organization. And what happened is because he listened to them, they said to him, you are the first white person to listen to us and to consider our issues, our concerns, and even our complaints. And because he listened, trust began to build. And they got to see in him, even though he's new, that he may be an ally to their cause. And so he was able to um, help quell that situation simply by listening. And, and now he has the ability to go to the higher ups and share with them the voices of the people who are a little bit lower in the organization. So he's using his privilege and his access to empower people who are normally not as powerful. So we, we've got to make some practical steps. How, how do we um, hear people? How do we make steps to be intentional, to be uh, inclusive in our hiring, especially in the upper echelon of the organization? And when it comes to managing detention, we also have to face the reality that everything won't always smooth out and we may not always have a kumbaya moment. Some people will walk away from the organization and they will be frustrated. Uh, in my case, I happen to be a pastor and I pastor a multicultural church in the South. And so many times I am misinterpreted, misunderstood, and people, um, when they feel the tension that comes from diversity and us calling things as they are, um, people walk away and not only will they walk away they'll criticize us in the process but I'm okay with that because once again our vision and what we're called to do is bigger than any one disgruntled employee member or a, you know person watching on the sideline so just expect it to happen but there will be 
many people who will be thankful that you went there. There will be many people who will stay with you, who will hang with the organization as you as you face these kinds of tumultuous waters. The fifth and final lesson I want to cover is a tricky one. And I almost thought about not including this because it's going to be, I think, challenging for us to navigate this in a way that's helpful and that people don't misinterpret it. We probably will be misunderstood, so that's fine. But here it is. Your private life could affect your leadership in the moment and in your legacy. Mm -hmm. And during his career, people, including the federal government, by the way, tried smearing King and damaging his reputation. Most of it didn't stick. His vision and his leadership were overpowering. But after his death, some of the charges like philandering and plagiarizing his PhD thesis have caused some doubts about him. Now, I, again, I don't say this to speak ill of Dr. King or of his legacy, but it's a reality. we got to put it out there. And I think mm -hmm. there's a, a very important leadership lesson for all of us. It's almost like there's two parts to this. On the one hand, you know, possible moral failings that you have as a leader can really undermine your legacy. They can cast kind of a shadow of doubt over it. They can undermine it for sure. Um, or you can completely lose it. Or you, can, or you can completely lose it. I mean, if it's really bad. On the other hand, if we're not careful, we hold leaders to a standard that's impossible for anyone to measure up to, and we discount or discredit their entire legacy because of a, a certain failing. And neither of those are good. You know, like I think we have to somehow hold in tension the fact that um, no one's perfect. Right. And that's just a reality and that, that all humans and especially leaders are complex. And on the other hand, that leaders are called to a higher standard. And both of those are true at the same time. And we need to be really aware of it as leaders ourselves and in the as we think about the people that we respect and try to emulate. Yeah, and I think it starts as leaders by holding ourselves accountable, holding ourselves to a higher standard mm -hmm. and realizing that in a sense, while our private lives and our public lives are two different things, they're permeable. Right. So what we do in private does bleed into the public and particularly in the world of social media. Oh my gosh. You know, I just I just assume that I'm always being recorded. It's almost like there is no private anymore. Uh, I mean, that's right. That's what you should assume as a leader. There is no private, there is no place that you're safe to uh, pursue indiscretions and think that they won't be found out. Well, and I, I remember when I when I became the CEO of Thomas Nelson it was a public company. Mm -hmm. So we were traded on the New York Stock Exchange and they covered our company. And I remember my predecessor, Sam Moore, said to me, he said, I want you to think about this. Every decision you make, act as though it was going to be on the front page of the New York Times tomorrow wow. or the Wall Street Journal. And I thought, okay, that's a good standard. And that was kind of like pre-Facebook, Instagram, yeah. YouTube, everything else. Well, and I heard I heard some uh, ladies talking about the Me Too movement last night. I was watching TV. And this person said, and I thought this was smart too, they said, you know, it's it's not that difficult. Just ask yourself this question. Is the way that I'm treating that other person or the thing that I've said about that other person, would my mom be proud of me if, <laughs> wow. if she knew that? Or would I want someone to do that to my daughter? That's another- Hello. Another very good way to look at it. Yeah. So we got to be careful about erecting a standard that is that is so high that we don't have any heroes. And that's kind of what we have today. Right. But on the other hand, letting go of the standard, just say, well, that's just the way it is. That's the status quo. 
Right. So somehow we have to live with this tension, fight for what is right. But I think to me, the most important lesson of all this is not to judge other people, but to look in the mirror and reflect on our own behavior mm-hmm. and ask ourselves the, the question, am I setting the standard? Am I walking my talk? Mm-hmm. Am I living my convictions? Am I living a life worth emulating? If mm-hmm. we'll do that, pretty much everything else takes care of itself. Yeah, and kind of back to the Me Too movement, indiscretion, infidelity, abuse, all those things. I mean, the the people that are being called out right now, their whole professional legacy and their influence is, is really on the line. It's done, you know, and that's what we don't want to have happen to us as leaders. And it's totally preventable. I mean, that's the bottom line. It's right. totally preventable. And it begins with holding yourself accountable. Exactly. So today we've covered five leadership lessons from the life of Martin Luther King Jr. Number one, reject the status quo. Number two, reframe limiting beliefs. Number three, cultivate the skill of listening. Number four, leverage inclusion and diversity. And number five, recognize that your private life affects your public influence. So dad, any final thoughts that you have today? Yeah, I would say this is the great value of reading biographies, Hmm. is that we find these leadership principles come to life. And I think Dr. King, though he wasn't perfect, he is a hero of mine because he he did so many things well as a leader. And I think blazed a path that we can follow mm-hmm. and will help us as leaders if we'll just listen to the lessons uh, that his life really expressed. Excellent. All right, as we close, I want to thank our sponsor, Leaderbox. It provides automated personal development in a box. Check it out at leaderbox.com. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, you can get the show notes and a full transcript online at lead2.win. Thanks again for joining us on Lead to Win. If you like the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And also, please leave a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. This program is copyrighted by Michael Hyde and Company, all rights reserved. Our producer is Nick Jaworski. Our writers are Joel Miller, Mandy Raviccio, and Jeremy Lott. Our recording engineer is Mike Boyer. Our production assistant is Alicia Curry. And our intern is Winston. We invite you to join us for our next episode, where we'll be discussing how leaders can motivate their teams in the coming year. Until then lead to win.